And we're going to do a little uh, word association. This might feel like homework, uh, but, you know, let's get our minds a little active here today. Um, So if I say a word, I just want you to think of, like, what comes to mind. Um, So if I say the word person... Right, you got an image of kind of what comes into your mind. That seems pretty, pretty straightforward. But if I say the word American, right, that, that probably is something we all kind of have the same uh, idea in, uh, of. Uh, European, maybe if I say that word, okay, kind of get that. Michigander, it's a fun word to say, but we know what that is, right? What about the word Christian? What's a Christian? Um, interestingly, if I were to say, divide this room up into like 20 different groups of people, I'd probably get about 15 different like versions of an answer on that. Right. If I say, define the word Christian, uh, if somebody were to walk up to you on a street corner, uh, and say, Hey, are you a Christian? I think some of you might go, yeah, I am. I think some of you might say, well, what do you mean by that word? Right. I think some of you might say, well, yes, but some of us might say, well, no, but, right? If I asked you, are you a Christian? Some of us might even say, uh, I am, but not like that. Or for a while I was, but I'm not anymore. Isn't that interesting? Words are, words are kind of funny, right? And how they, the same word can mean some different things. And here's this term that we use all the time, a term many of us would associate ourselves with, with in the idea of the word Christian. Yet there are all these nuances and versions of what that word really means to us. We can almost make that word mean anything we want. In fact, what that word means today in the culture you live in right now might mean something, feel something very different than it did 20 years ago or 200 years ago. And that's what's interesting about this word is that we can kind of make it mean what we want. And in fact, the term Christian, that word only shows up in the Bible three times. And, it, and in those three times that it shows up, it's never actually defined. The Bible doesn't define that word ever. And the people who were called Christians in the Bible, when it comes up, uh, they never actually even called themselves that. That was not a word they used for themselves. Uh, and so today, as we close the series on partnering in the gospel... I want to look at that word and that idea, in particular, the beginning of the church in the book of Acts. And and I want to talk about how we define things, how we define that word, sure, but more importantly, how do we define the church and how how does the church get defined early on in the book of Acts? Now, the book of Acts isn't really a book, right? It's a collection of manuscripts. Uh, but that, that, that collection of manuscripts that we call Acts, the, the more formal term is the Acts of the Apostles. And the whole idea behind Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, is to tell the story of what happened after Jesus left. The Gospels tell us the story of Jesus' birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection, Like those are very Jesus-centered books that are uh, trying to do some biographical work on Christ. The book of Acts is all about his followers, the apostles, and it's all about the church and how that began and what happened. 
And it tells us how the church got started in particular. The portion I'm about to read uh, is, it starts with sort of one of these things that happened after Jesus had left. And it's Acts 8, verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And the word church there, they're referring to these followers of Jesus specifically. Uh, And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So a persecution breaks out at the beginning, at the infancy of this church, these followers of Jesus. And it happens specifically in Jerusalem. And all these people leave. They flee. And his followers, they're scattered, right? And and some of them went to a city in, in what's now Turkey, but then was called Antioch. And they got there, and when they got there, they started telling Jewish people, And Gentile people, hey, God has done something unbelievable and miraculous in the city of Jerusalem. I got to tell you about it. And a man actually rose from the dead. And I saw them and some of my friends saw them, saw him. And a bunch of Greek-speaking, Roman-minded, Gentile, not Jewish people in the city of Jerusalem kind of people started embracing this new way of living. This kind of, at that point, what probably felt like a knockoff religion from Judaism. All these Jewish folks turning into these followers of Jesus. And all of a sudden, you get a church. The church starts in this place called Antioch. Well, word sort of gets back to the apostles, as you saw uh, in that first verse. They They were in Jerusalem. Everybody got scattered, but it says the apostles didn't. They stuck around. I don't know why they stuck around there in particular, but word gets back to them. And in Acts 11, we hear this. News of this, this church that started in Antioch, uh, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. So in Jerusalem, you've got Peter and you've got James and John and Matthew and all these guys, and they find out what's happening out uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the wilderness, out in the Gentile land, out in Antioch. And so they get Barnabas, uh, whose name means son of encouragement, which you think about Barnabas is like, oh, that's a really good guy. I want to be like that guy. He sounds good. But it was his dad that was a really nice guy, right? He's just son of. I don't know what Barnabas is all about, but his dad sounds like a really cool guy. Um, and so they get Barnabas and they say, listen, go check this out for us. Is this like the real deal? This is new. We've just heard about this thing in Antioch. So Barnabas goes, goes to Antioch. And there are so many people that are just following this way of Jesus. There are so many people that have embraced this life of Jesus that he's like, I need help. So he calls in reinforcements. And he goes to Tarsus to find Saul, who we know later as Paul, the Apostle Paul. And he goes to Tarsus, he gets Saul, and he brings him back to Antioch. And for about a year, they meet with this church. Because there's like this big church now in Antioch, and he's got to make sure that they're not going rogue or anything like that, right? And then, and then after they do this, the last kind of thing Luke records about this situation in Acts 11 is this sentence. 
Acts 11, verse 26. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. They were first called this here in this place. They didn't call themselves Christians. They were called Christians first here. And uh, what's interesting to me is that this story, this way of identifying this idea of Christian uh, ties directly into Roman history. Uh, right into the Roman history books from outside of the Bible, we actually have history written uh, by one, gate, one guy named Cornelius Tacitus. And Tacitus wrote in the late first century, and he wrote primarily about all these Roman emperors and was kind of telling their stories and their histories. And one of the Roman emperors he told about was a Roman emperor named Nero. And Nero did something really crazy in 64 AD. Uh, He decided, uh, Nero's like, I'm the most important thing. I want to wipe out like kind of all story, all, all memory of like whatever came before me. I want people to think about Rome and about the emperor. I want them thinking about me. And so he decides to burn down Rome. It's like, I'm going to just burn it down and start it over. This guy is crazy. And so he burnt Rome to the ground and started restarting it, rebuilding it, which didn't go very well because, uh, because um, you know, people's homes and businesses burned down. And so Nero decided that he was going to blame the Christians for that fire. And we know that because of what I'm about to read to you from Tacitus, the historian, which is telling the tale. And this is how he describes the event. So he says this, to get rid of the report, the story that Nero burned down his own city, to get rid of that story uh, in the news cycle, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Now, we're not going to get into all the abominations, but it was things like, you know, when you got a group of people who are uh, talking all the time about how they got to love their brother and sister, feels a little weird. Uh, When they talk all the the time about how they got to eat the body and drink the blood, that feels a little weird. And so the outsiders looked at the Christians as, uh, you know, maybe not the most, uh, not the greatest people around. So again, in this history, we see the Christians didn't call themselves that. Christians called themselves something else. The populace called them Christians. The, the outsiders, the people from the outside looking in, they called them this. Now, hang with me, because it's going to matter, trust me. Doing a lot of work on the word Christian, I get it. It's going to matter. Tacitus goes on in this story. So he says, Nero, you know, burned the city down. He blamed it on what we call them as the Christians, right? And then he says this, uh, Christus, for whom the name had its origin. Now, pause for a moment. He's basically noting that Christians, who I blame this on, found their origin in Christus, in Christ. The person with the name Christus. It's like these outsiders keep hearing all these guys talking about Jesus Christ, this, Jesus Christ, that. Have you heard of Jesus Christ? And and they just sort of assume it's this guy's name, 
right? Christ is a Hebrew word for Messiah or Savior. And so when they are talking about Jesus, they're talking about Jesus the Savior, Jesus the Messiah. But they don't speak Hebrew, so they just figured Christ was this dude's last name. Like there was a James Christ, there was a a Mary Christ, and there was a Jesus Christ. There's probably an Ashley Christ, like a David Scott Christ. It's the guy's name, right? And so this historian writes that down. Nero blamed this fire on the Christians whose name Christian had its origin in this guy's name, Mr. Jesus Christ. Okay, we're tracking. And then he goes on uh, after that. So uh, he says, Mr. Jesus Christ suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of the procurators, Pontius Pilatus, who we call Pontius Pilate. And so that's just a historical document that's basically saying Mr. Jesus Christ was killed on a cross during the reign of Tiberius by this guy, Pilate. And the people who followed him, we call Christians after Mr. Jesus Christ. They're the ones to blame for the fire. So do you get all that? That's our history lesson a little bit today. It's just a historical reference to point to the fact that all of this is that there were outsiders looking at this movement, trying to come up with a name for it, and they called people Christians. But the Christians didn't call themselves that. When you look at the New Testament, in the book of Acts specifically, there is a term used very consistently to describe these people who are part of this Jesus way of life. And it's the term disciple. In fact, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. That's what they called themselves. Outsiders said Christians, but we call ourselves disciples. And in the Bible, you see this word over and over and over again in Acts 6, verse 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So the word of God spread in a large number of not Christians, but disciples grew and increased. Or even the, when the first disciples met Paul, right, in Acts 9, when he, Paul, came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples like it was some band or club, right? Uh, but they were all afraid of him, not believing he really was a disciple, They're not calling themselves Christians, but they're afraid of Paul because Paul started his story persecuting the church. He he had an encounter with Christ that changed his life. He gave his life to following being a disciple of Jesus, but they still remember the guy who murdered and imprisoned and tried to destroy the church. But he became a disciple. So the people don't trust him yet. They thought he was maybe trying to infiltrate their, their faith community, have them all arrested from the inside. Paul tries to join the disciples because he himself is a disciple. That's a term they use. Even 10 verses later, it comes up again. In Acts 9, verse 36, in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. Feels like a downgrade in terms of names. Uh, she was also doing, always doing good and helping the poor. Even women are disciples in our movement. We don't call them something different. They're the same. That's what we call ourselves, disciples. Now, in English and in Greek, which the New Testament is written in, the word disciple has the same meaning, right? Disciple, in terms of a definition, simply means a learner, a pupil, an apprentice, an adherent, a follower. 
a, a disciple is someone who lives like this, right? They look at the one they are following, the one they are apprenticing, the one they are learning from, and they say things like this, like, I'm trying to make a decision. How would you handle this? Or I need to respond to a situation. How would you respond? How do you live your life? How do you manage your relationships? People who are disciples say, well, if Jesus were me, if he had my friends, my job, my life, how would he handle this? And I'm going to do that. It's not quite the same way we uh, define the word disciple is, or Christian, is it? Because Christian can mean just about anything today. Because the outsiders get to define what it is. Christian can mean any of the things we've named along the way. Different definitions of that word can even contradict each other. In fact, you look at any social issue in our world today. Immigration, divorce, sexuality, any issue you can think of. And what you will see in our world is that there are Christians who have opposing viewpoints on that topic. Read the blogs, read the social media. Some Christians say X, while some Christians say Y, right? Because you can make that word mean anything. You can hide behind the word Christian all day long. You can do all kinds of things in the name of Christianity. In fact, that we have over the history of the world. We've gone to war in the name of Christianity. You can do all types of stuff with the word Christian because Christian gets defined by the outsiders. Gets defined by the culture at that time. But that's not what they called themselves. They referred to themselves as a disciple. And to be a disciple is a lot harder than being a Christian. Because you can't hide behind whatever version of that word works best for you. Which brings us to a really difficult question Are we disciples or are we just Christians? Are you a disciple of Jesus or are you just a Christian? Are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you someone who looks at the one you follow and says, how would he handle this situation? You know what? I got I to gotta talk to people who have followed Jesus before to find that out. I got to read in the scripture of, of how he interacted with people and, 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 and translate that and intuit that into my world, Right? Or are you a Christian? Well, today they say Christian means do these things, be this way, feel this way, say these things. So I guess I, I got to do that. Those are two very different ways of living. While Christian can be whatever we like, disciple of Jesus actually gets pretty well defined in the Bible. And throughout this series, we've actually named four commitments that, that we boiled it down to these four commitments that disciples make. Commitment number one, I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead to be my savior and I profess my commitment to his lordship in my life. I'm gonna put him in the center. Or commitment number two, I commit to take next steps to become more like Jesus and help others do the same. Disciples are people who are constantly being shaped to look like the one they follow. Commitment number three, I commit to participate in this community of belonging as we together seek to be centered on Jesus. Christians offer belonging in this world or followers of Jesus offer belonging in this world. And then four, I commit to partner in God's mission 
to help people find the way by, uh, back to God by being generous with all that I am, my time, my talents, my treasures. Those are commitments we make as disciples. They describe what a disciple is to some degree. And the New Testament is filled with these descriptions. Even listen to that brief uh, description about Tabitha. Like she was always doing good and helping everybody, right? That's a disciple. And these four ways are just ways we try to boil that down. But Jesus himself makes this definition even simpler, even clearer for us. He makes it unmistakable to know what it means to define that word and be a disciple. And he does it in John chapter 13, verse 33. This is sort of like the last supper before he gets crucified. He says, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. So now, in this text, Jesus is like at the end of his ministry. It's literally the Last Supper. And so he has this moment with these guys who've been following him for like three years, and he's like, all right, this is final exam time, right? If you're in Hudsonville schools, you just ended a trimester a week ago, final exams, right? He's about to have his Passover with his followers and he's sort of running out of time. And he's like, let's do one more lesson to wrap it all up. And he says, here's the one thing you need to know to get it right. A new command I give you. Now that word new is interesting. Because in the original language, new doesn't mean what you think it means. New doesn't mean this didn't exist before. That's how I read it, right? Jesus is like, look, let me tell you something nobody has ever told you. Love each other. Like, that's not new, Jesus. It's in the Old Testament. But that's not what that means. In fact, in the Greek, new can most often mean unusual, strange, impractical, Odd, a new command I give you, love one another. Jesus, we've heard you say that more. Yeah, that's not what I mean. Jesus is like, no, this isn't a command you haven't heard before. This is more like a really impractical and unusual, difficult to live out command. A new command I give you, love one another. And then he elaborates. Right? He says, here's why this is going to be an unusual and impractical and difficult to live out command. Because the command is, I want you to love like me. As I have loved you, so you should love one another. And while they're kind of taking that in, the weight, the gravity of how that's different than how they used to go about loving one another, say, I got to love you like he loved you. That does seem impractical. That does seem difficult. While they're kind of weighing all that in, he kind of lays this on, on him. He says, and it is by this, this one thing that everyone will know how to define a disciple. Now you see, anyone can call themselves a Christian, but a disciple That's defined by how you love like I loved. It's not even defined by how you live like me. It's it's not even defined by how much you know. Being a disciple isn't defined by how, how good you are every day. 
by how you do everything right or do everything perfect. Being a disciple is not about having the right answers, though being a Christian might be. But being a disciple is like in the midst of everything. In the midst of conflict, in the midst of disagreement, in the midst of broken relationships, in the midst of you approach the social issue like Y and I approach the social issue like X, in the midst of your everyday boring and complicated life, disciples choose to love each other just like I have chosen to love you. And that's why a disciple is far more difficult to be than a Christian. In fact, you have, may have just realized that you're actually not a disciple, but you're a Christian. It's such a weighty concept, right? That even in this moment, as Jesus is laying this final exam out for them, Peter totally misses the boat, right? Uh, in verse 34, he says, a new command I give you, uh, a difficult, impractical thing that'll stick out. No one lives like this kind of command. Love one another, but not just the way you've thought of it, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know how to define you're one of my disciples if you love one another. And then Peter goes, Lord, I have a question. Where are you going? What? Peter, this one thing, this bottom line, guys, this defining characteristic of people that follow me is not going to be how much they know about me. It's not going to be how often they go to church. It's not going to be how often they pray or how long their prayers are. It's going to be all about how they choose to love each other the way I did. Yeah, but where are you going? Peter, I want to know where you're going because I want to go with you. Yeah, I get it, Peter. But did you just miss the whole thing that I just, it was really good stuff, man, right? Peter says, yes, but I want to go with you. I am willing to die for you. I am all in. But don't miss this messaging of Jesus because Jesus' message here is, I don't need you to go where I'm going. I don't need you to die for me when I die. I don't, I don't need you to do it all exactly. Like, Peter, I actually want you to do something that's far more difficult. I want you to love these guys for the rest of your life. I want you to love these guys for the rest of your life in a way that people will interact with you all and be a little confused and be a little intrigued. I want you to love these guys for the rest of your life in a way that will make other people look at you and say, look at how they love each other. I want people to see your generosity, your forgiveness, your commitment to something beyond yourself, your commitment to sharpening each other and making each other better and and say, who lives like this? Jesus is saying to Peter, like, I don't want you to come with me and, and to, or to die for me. I want you to love these guys in such a way that people will come to the edge of your little community and kind of peer in and say, look at how the men treat the women in this community. Look at how the parents honor the children in this community. Look at how the slaves treat the masters and the masters treat the slaves in this community. Look at what they do with their money. Look at how they treat people who have wronged them. 
Look at how, how they treat people who the rest of their community says should be stoned. Look at how they love each other. That's what I want you to do, Peter. Love each other like I have loved you. Because this is what it means for you to be my disciple. Being a disciple is not the same thing as being a Christian, is it? It's a Venn diagram. I'll at least give it that. There's some overlap. But there are, as Melissa said, there are over 50 verses in the New Testament that explore what it means to live out what Jesus is talking about. And they use that same framing as the one and other passages. We, we, we read some together. Let me just remind us of a few. Build up one another. Accept one another. Be patient with one another. Speak the truth in love to one another. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Submit to one another. Encourage one another. Show hospitality to one another. Confess your faults to one another. That's a tough one. Stop passing judgment on one another. That's an even tougher one. Comfort one another. I mean, could you imagine if we got all that right? If we got all that uh, as part of the way we lived our everyday lives with each other? Could you imagine if we loved each other the way Jesus has loved? What do you think would change in the world? Imagine if, if, if you just said, you know what? My family's gonna do this for one month. We're gonna live like that. These are gonna be like our guiding principles of how we interact with each other. We're just gonna love each other and it's gonna look like this list of things. Could you imagine what would change? Could you imagine what would change in our world if we lived like disciples instead of just Christians? Now, the problem with this is it doesn't fix anybody, right? We often want to fix other people. We want them to get it right. We want them to live the way we're supposed to be living and do it right. And this won't do that. These one and others is not going to make anybody uh, correct anything. But that's not what Jesus said our job was. Jesus says our job description, what it means to be his disciple is to love each other the way he loved us. You know, Jesus gives this kind of one sentence, this final exam, right? This, this one sentence description of a disciple at a very pivotal moment in his life, the Last Supper. And I just want to read you how John starts the, the scene. We skipped into the middle of it, right? In the middle of dinner, we jumped into this lesson. But listen to how John starts the dinner, starts the scene. John 13, verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. He set an example, a reminder that our world needs the church to be disciples of Christ, not just Christians. Because if the church is going to matter, if the church is going to be relevant, if the church is going to change anything, then the world needs us to remember Jesus' command at a supper table where he washed these guys' feet. 
Our world needs the church to be reminded of the command that Jesus says is difficult and impractical and an unusual way of living to love one another as he did. And so we're going to do that a little bit today. I mean, not the foot washing part, but I'm not going to stop you if that's what you're up to. Uh, But we're going to remember this last supper where he gave this last uh, commandment. And we do this every month around here. As we come to the table, it's an opportunity to reflect on the way uh, of, on this particular way of living, to note, where have I fallen short in this way? To confess it and to accept his grace and start all over and do it again. But to also be reminded of how God has never fallen short of that kind of love for me. To come to the table in gratitude that that is the truth of my relationship with him. And so today I'm going to add a little something to our practice together. Uh, On your seat or in your hand, you have two cards that are there. We'll talk about them for a moment. Um, This blue one, I guess, is what we call our next steps card, our connection card. We hand this out to you every single week. Uh, But I want to name that specifically in this series, we have been encouraging you to name a next step. Right? Maybe that next step has something to do with placing Christ at the center of your life. Or maybe it has something to do with allowing yourself to be shaped by him. Or maybe participating in a community of belonging. Or maybe it has to do with your understanding of God's mission or how you choose to love like Jesus. It could be almost anything. Uh, But I'm willing to bet that somewhere, either today or along the journey in this last series, that God might have nudged you, might have poked you or prodded you, and that there is a next step you can take as a response to his invitation. That's what this card is for. Now, there's nothing magical about filling out a next steps card, like, but there is something powerful, I think, about one, naming a step that I can take in my spiritual journey, and two, communicating that with someone else. And so this card is a practical way for you to take a next step. We actually have baskets at our communion tables today. Uh, And if you want to take a moment before you come to the table to just fill out and name your next step. Take that moment with you as you come to the table. And if you feel something, but like I'm having trouble clarifying, like there is a next step. I don't exactly know what I like. We'll help you. That's what your church is here for. That's what we do with each other. Now grab this other card for a minute, the orange one. Um, This first card is a card for next steps. We hand that out every week because there's always another next step. This orange one is about a specific next step. The next step of committing to partnering with Jamestown Harbor Church. Now, to be clear, you don't have to fill out anything to belong in this church. No one has to agree to anything or fill out anything just to simply belong here and be in. You can belong and be in a relationship with us no matter what. But as we've been talking through these commitments this month, this next step might be important to you. It might be a way for you to look at your church, not as something you consume, but something you commit to. Uh, As a place, maybe not where you just attend, but as people you are partnering with. And taking that specific next step might be exactly what God's inviting you into. And so if that's something God's calling you to and you want to communicate with us, that with us, that's what the orange card is for. One is just any next step God might be leading you to. And this one is specifically a next step about partnering. So 
as we take uh, communion today and celebrate the Last Supper, that's our opportunity, is to come to the table with a next step. Say, God, I want to I respond to you and take a next step towards you. And as we do that, we're going to reflect on God's unending love made real to you and I through the cross and the resurrection that even our history books testify to. Isn't that wild? And we get to take time to reflect on this calling he has to love each other as he has loved us, to confess where we've missed it and take a next step toward that calling. That odd, unusual, difficult to live out way of living. That's what we get to do together as a church. So we have four stations around the room, one in each corner in a minute. Uh, I'm going to ask you to get up and make your way uh, to one of them. Doesn't even have to be the nearest one. We have gluten-free in the back corner, if that's a blessing to you. Um, And I'll invite you to take the elements first to take the bread uh, and then dip it in the juice uh, and then take those both together before you return to your seat. And, And again, we say this every month, but there's no rush. Take a moment, reflect on your next steps, maybe fill out a card to bring with you. We'll be here till we all get a chance to take uh, a moment and reflect on that. If you have chosen to take a next step for Jesus towards Jesus, or you want to make that choice for the first time today, this is an invitation for you to participate at the table. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I'm grateful today. Um, that you have given us a new command, that you have given us a command that is not shaped by what an outsider says, that is not shaped by whatever our current history or culture or moment says about following you, but that you've given us a command to live as your son Christ has, to love as Jesus has. God, I confess today that we often change that definition. We add to it. We take some things away. We apply it in ways that, don't, that aren't intended to, but God, we have missed the mark. And we are also grateful that your grace and forgiveness has never been and never will be a one-time experience, but that we can come to the table again today and, and say once again, I'm gonna love the way you have loved me because I want the world to see uh, what it means to be a disciple. So Lord, help us to live as disciples rather than any other definition or word. Help us to love like you have loved us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.